Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Just a quick announcement before we begin tonight's lesson on Mary the Magdalene and her hometown of Magdala. So starting on Tuesday, September 21st, 2021, we're going to be starting a new Bible study through the book of Matthew. And because we've recently changed our format, we're going to be opening this study up to others who'd like to join us each Tuesday night on Zoom. So class will begin at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific. And for more information on the class and how to sign up, you can go to our website, figtreeteaching.com. At the website, look for Join Our Bible Study link, which is at the top of the page. And when you click through that, it's going to look as though you're purchasing something, but that's actually, there's no cost. That's just our way of collecting the names of those who are signing up. So check out figtreeteaching.com, join our Bible study if you're interested in joining the live study on the book of Matthew. So on to our study tonight. We'll be looking at the village of Magdala, Mary's hometown, Mary the Magdalene. And we're going to try to redeem Mary's name from how she's been portrayed throughout history by looking at this amazing town that sat on the Sea of Galilee and what the Bible really says about Mary. Enjoy tonight's lesson. We're going to take a virtual tour to the city of Magdala. Okay, so you've seen this picture before. It's the village or the city of Magdala. And we're going to take a little tour around the city of Magdala. For those of you who have been there, this will be a little refresher. For those of you who haven't been there, it's truly one of the gems in Israel um, today. And what's so cool about it is 20 years ago, you would have never seen this. So we'll talk a little bit about the archaeological uh, work going on there and the excavations. But we'll be at Magdala. It's the Sea of Galilee Part 21. So we ended on a number that is divisible by seven, if that means anything, as we finish up our series on the Sea of Galilee. And today, it's going to be a combination. We're going to talk about Magdala, but then we want to talk about Mary the Magdalene, because this is her hometown. And God willing, we will redeem Mary's name in a way, because as we'll see throughout history, we've said that she was a prostitute, and that's never described anywhere in Scripture. So, well, I'll show you where that likely comes from, but uh, we'll do a little bit of redeeming of Mary's name and then talk about what may have been her sins, at least how modern scholars are looking at it after uh, looking at Magdala. Okay, so this is the synagogue, the synagogue at Magdala. This is a first century synagogue in Galilee, and that's really important. It was discovered in 2009 as they were building that building, that's, that white building behind it is now a conference center and hotel. And they were building that building and discovered the synagogue. What makes that so critical is for a long time, a long time, in fact, um, speaking with one of my instructors, he said back in the 70s, many seminaries in the U.S., they said, look, when you see that word synagogue in your New Testament, uh, well, there probably weren't any synagogues. 
It was probably added later. This was the way that professors, seminary professors were thinking. And the reason they would say that is because no one had ever found a first century synagogue. Now, well, I'm sorry, in Galilee. They had recently found the one in Gamla, but it didn't filter its way into the seminaries yet. Now, there are nine, maybe, it's either nine or twelve. I, I don't, my memory's uh, failing me at this moment, but this is so cool because it's another example that in the first century, this synagogue existed. And if Matthew says that Jesus went to all the synagogues in Galilee, well, if you take all to mean all, then what, what are the odds that Jesus was in this, in this synagogue? Well, somewhere close to 100%. So it is a cool thing to study because you can recognize how as, as archaeology pulls stuff out of the ground in, in Israel or even in Turkey, that we learn things about our Bible that we didn't know before. So it's, it's, this is one of those fun things to see because of its recentness. And we couldn't have had this study 20 years ago. Now, here's what I want you to do. We're going to read. You can turn to Luke 8. You can basically leave your Bible at Luke 8. We're going to read three passages that'll have to do with Mary uh, the Magdalene, called Magdalene, and then we'll come back to this area, Luke 7, later. But uh, turn to Luke 8, 1 to 3. And here's a mention of Mary. And we want to look at, it's the very last part of verse 3 that's going to be really the part we want to focus on. So I'm just going to start at the top here. So it says, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another. He was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out of, or had come out. So right here, we get a reference. There's obviously a number of references to Mary, but Mary called Magdalene, meaning she's from the town of Magdala. Then we have to figure out, what does Luke mean about seven demons? He doesn't explain it, but okay, let's keep going. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, her husband has an interesting job, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, that's that's the part of the verse, especially if you travel today to Magdala. The guides that work there will say, we need to pay attention to that. This is a wealthy town. And so scholars are now thinking, was Mary one of the wealthy people of Magdala? And then she gets attached to the city. So notice here, she's not attached to a particular male. And that's usually how a woman in the Bible is, if they're mentioned, they'll be attached to a male, whether it's a father or a son. But she's not. She's attached to the city. So we have to hold that thought. What does that mean that she supported them through her own means? And the unfortunate part is we don't really know. So we have to do a little work around the edges. There is tremendous ambiguity about Mary 
anytime you have tremendous ambiguity about anything, it's like an open invitation to spin tales. And that's what we'll see throughout history that, that has happened. We don't know much about Mary from the Bible, but w- what we do know is she plays a significant role. And we'll look at that, some of the things that she was part of in this gospel movement, the, G- the early Jesus movement. All right, so let's go take a little trip around the town of Magdala. So the first place we'll go is to a map. It's always good in our mind to say, okay, where are we at this moment? This is one of the villages or the towns near the Sea of Galilee. So we'll start with Capernaum. That's where Jesus made his home. Last week, we were in Chorazin, about two miles just to the north of Capernaum. We've mentioned routinely Tiberius. Tiberius was the place where Herod, about 10 years earlier, had put the Roman, his capital city. And then we have this town called Magdala, and it's nestled right in between. Let me back that up. It sits right in between the edge of a very steep cliff and the sea. It's kind of in this little corner down there, and that will come into play. We'll see. So this mountain right here is called Mount Arbel. We've noted that mountain a couple of times. And what's really cool, this just the way it enters our history is so cool. It sits right below a mountain. I don't I think I have one picture where you might be able to see Mount Arbel in the background. At some point, and we're not exactly sure when, a mudslide came down Mount Arbel and covered this whole section of town that the synagogue sits on. Now, the village, eventually, the, the center of the village moved a little bit to the north, and there had been some excavations in the 70s, uh, but they couldn't find anything of, of significance. They knew it was Magdala, but they were always surprised that there wasn't a synagogue. For as large a town as this was, there was no synagogue. And it was because that mountain that sits right back there, you get a mudslide, and it waited 2,000 years for you guys to be here and be able to see the synagogue. That's pretty cool. It was just laying under the mud. So hopefully, I think I have a photo that you can see, actually, how much they had to dig down to excavate this. Okay, so it sits right on the lake. Huge fishing village. In fact, let's take a look at the different names that Magdala has gone by. Aramaic Magdala. By the way, the handout, I made a mistake. I think I put Migdal next to where I put Aramaic. But anyways, Aramaic Magdala. Magdala means tower. What tower? They don't know. So there's speculation about why that would be called tower, but Magdala means tower. In the Greek, the historian Josephus uses a word that I'm probably going to slaughter here, terracheia, and that means salted fish. So what do you think that, that, that Magdala was famous for? Their salted fish. So Magdala is a fishing town called Tower. And then in Hebrew, we find in the, in the Talmud, the rabbis, they call it Migdal Nunya, the Tower of Fish. So they just combined the fish part and the tower part. And today it's called Migdal, but uh, you get Tower of Fish. So, the city, 
is a famous fishing village. It is the preeminent fishing village in Galilee. And it's a very wealthy town. It's large. We'll see in a minute. It's one of the it's the largest town in that area, and it was a very important town. So the salted fish uh, or tower of fish. So we know that the city has to do with fishing. A few data points here. This is just mostly data to give you an idea about Magdala. The estimates are somewhere in Jesus' day, 30 to 40,000 people in Magdala. Now, Magdala had been the administrative uh, seat until 20 AD when, when uh, Herod moved his capital to Tiberias. But this was a large city. There was a lot of activity. There would be intermingling of, of Jew and Gentile. So they estimate 30,000 people. In fact, scholars, they found this synagogue. Scholars are a little bit amazed that there aren't two synagogues with a population that large. It's a wealthy city. I've mentioned that, and I will say it over and over. Their wealth comes from the distribution of salted fish, the sardines. They become like, I don't know, power bars, cliff bars, whatever you think might be something that you carry as a little snack food in your bag that if you need some energy along the way. These fish were distributed all over the Mediterranean and well-known. So I'm going to give you a list of ancient sources that mention Magdala. Now, I didn't put this on your sheet. There's a, a naturalist named Pliny the Elder. Pliny the Elder writes about Magdala. Now, he writes about all things in nature, but he brings up Magdala. You have Cicero, Suetonius, the historian, Strabo, the geographer. They all mention Magdala. Now, these are Romans. And the bottom three mention it because they're famous for their fish. Now, if you think about this, it's just like Silicon Valley today. Silicon Valley is a small little place geographically that distributes widely to billions of people around the world. Facebook, Google, Apple, they're collecting money from all over the places flowing back in towards this little geographical area. That's what's happening with Magdala. You've got a natural resource like fish that reproduce themselves that you distribute to all over the world. And that means all kinds of money from outside your little geographical area come flowing in. So you've got excess wealth. So they're wealthy. And that actually go, comes into the, even the rabbis comment about their wealth. So it's, it's a wealthy place. Then we note also Magdala destroyed by Rome in 67 AD. So when, when the zealots kicked off their war, rebelling against Rome in 66, by 67 AD, the Roman general Vespasian, who would eventually become the emperor, he attacks Magdala in what was the only sea battle ever on the Sea of Galilee during that war. So you don't hear Rome doing sea battles but they ended up attacking Magdala via the sea. So Rome comes after Magdala, and when the, when the people at Magdala realized that all was lost, they took off running, and they went down to Tiberias, which is probably, I guess it was the only direction they could go, but it's also the seat of Roman power, so it's kind of like running right into the, the hands of the enemies. They get down there, 
Vespasian, now all of these details are according to Josephus, the Roman historian. His numbers, you never really know how accurate Josephus' numbers. He says Vespasian took 1,200 of them into the Colosseum or the, the stadium there at Tiberias and slaughtered them. Now, those were probably the rebel leaders. He took 6,000 of the people from Magdala and he shipped them off to Corinth. Now, Corinth, that's where Paul writes a letter to. But they had tried for years to dig a canal. Today, there's the Corinth Canal. But in the Roman era, they were trying to dig a canal, and Vespasian sent a whole bunch of workers from Magdala to go help uh, dig a canal. It was Nero at the time. And then another 30,000 people sold as slaves. So it was a big deal. The fall of Magdala was a big deal for those uh, Jews up around the Sea of Galilee during that war. Okay, that's just a little bit of data. Now let's go take a look here. This, again, I'll reiterate, the synagogue at Magdala, and it's really absolutely amazing. Hopefully, uh, when I was there last, they were still building the hotel and conference center. If you go on the Magdala.org website, it looks beautiful. looks absolutely beautiful, what they've completed. So, okay. So this is looking into the interior, and I'll show you a couple things about the interior of that synagogue. The, the space that just precedes the synagogue, right where this red circle is, is a school. So all the synagogues would have a school attached, just like many Christian or churches have a school attached to them. That's where you go learn throughout the week from the rabbis, learn your Torah, and the kids go. So that's part of the classroom right there. You can see in the back here, there's a bench there, there's a bench there. Those are called the chief seats. When Jesus says, make sure you're invited to sit in the chief seats, it's for the most important people in the town. You don't just walk in and plop yourself down in the most important seat. You wait to be invited to, be, to sit in the chief seats. So those are the nice seats. The disciples would be sitting back here in the back row somewhere. Okay, uh, let's do another picture. So the entranceway goes right here into the opening of that synagogue. And then you'll note here where that circle is, is the school again. And I want you to notice inside that circle is a big stone. And what it looks like is something that you would use to hold a scroll. So I'm going to show you a picture just from an angle but you can see those two indentations uh, on top of that stone. So it'd be like a table in the classroom. That was found inside the classroom, so they assume it's something that was used for the classroom. If we go around the other side, because this is where you can tell how wealthy this synagogue was, according to the guide there at Magdala, as they were digging down and uncovering the structure, they get to the very middle of the synagogue and sitting like somebody left it there waiting to be found is this stone. And today they, call, they just call it the Magdala Stone. If you Google Magdala Stone, you'll find pictures of this stone right here. And we'll take a look at it later. I'll, I'll show you closer. But it's a very intriguing find for archaeologists who don't find, they've never found anything like this anywhere else 
in Israel. And it's a depiction, actually, of the temple in Jerusalem. So I'll show you a few of those pictures later. But this is actually a replica, but they placed it right where they found it. So it's kind of cool to say, yep, they were digging down, and the next thing you know, there's a strange stone sitting in the middle of our synagogue. Here, where this red circle is, is uh, the mosaic floors. And this is how you know you're looking at a wealthy synagogue. They've got nice floors. It's not like some of the other synagogues that are dirt floors. This is a nice town. Really amazing mosaics. You also have the walls are frescoed, so you have beautiful um, coloring on the walls. Here's a close-up shot of some of that fresco still there today. So painted with the natural colors that are found around Magdala. And then what's really cool is I'll show you a chapel that they've built there, and they used all those same colors for the chapel. It's just, it's a beautiful chapel. Um, so it's a nice, there's a, there's a very nice synagogue, and scholars know it. Now, just to show you as an example, we've looked at the synagogue over in Gamla. That's where the zealots lived. That's another first century synagogue. So I'm just going to show you a real a picture of that so you can see they're built exactly the same. They have the basic outline, the basic structure, but you don't find mosaics and fresco in uh, Gamla. But you get down where a big village is, and you get this beautiful synagogue that uh, clearly took some artisans and some money to put that thing together. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take you just to what is the south of the synagogue. If we follow that arrow out, when you leave the synagogue, you end up in a marketplace. And this is a really amazing marketplace. Now, here's the synagogue in the background. You can see that they have a wooden seal, a roof over it. But that's the synagogue in the background. As you come out, you get into this marketplace. Now, they sell fish, yes? And so you have to keep the fish fresh, and it's a wet market. And if you can, I don't know if you can see my cursor, but there's these trenches that come out of the marketplace. It's, they have fresh water. They engineered fresh water to come out of the springs and to go around to all the shops that needed fresh water. And it still works today, the engineering. It, it pulls right out of the um, pulls right out of the groundwater. This is amazing stuff. So the engineering in this village were, was pretty amazing. What they needed this for, of course, this is a pool to hold fish. There's actually a couple of them right there. So you bring the catch of fish out of the boat. You can bring them up. It's like a wet market. You put the live fish. Then when you come down to buy your fish, you know the fish hasn't been it's not belly up. You know that it's still alive. It's fresher when you bring it home. So these would have been filled with water that would have been naturally flowing through the, or through the marketplace. Again, it was an engineering feat. If you go a little further to, um, it would be towards the top of that photo, uh, you get into an area that is very wealthy. These are very wealthy homes, and it looks like a religious enclosure, and I'll show you that in a minute. But you can see on that photo, again, you have mosaic tiled floors. So you know that it's not just the average person 
who's got mosaic tiles on their floors. It's the wealthy that have nice floors. So that's a mosaic tiles. And then in this area, what they found is four mikvahs, mikvaot, plural. And these are ritual baths. They're built right over by that, the wealthy part of town. And what's so cool about them, let me, uh, let me go to the next slide, take this away, is a mikvah, if you don't know, mikvah is ritual bathing. Before you go into the synagogue, you're going to go into the waters, you're going to immerse in the waters, and you're going to come out. And that's the representative of the ritual bathing that would take place prior to going into a holy area. The synagogue at Gamla has a mikvah. There are a ton, not a ton, there are many mikvahs around Jerusalem. As the pilgrims come in, they walk through the water. Now, what's really cool about this, you can see that there's water in the bottom of that mikvah. And they built this, these mikvahs into the groundwater so that they fill them by the natural groundwater. I mean, these are engineering feats. They had never found a mikvah like this in Israel. So this, by the way, is probably our precursor to the baptism tradition. It's a cleansing, an immersion by water. We use baptism in a different way as our sacrament, but it, but it would come out of this context that we get baptism. So let me show you. Here's another picture of one, and you can see there's an opening. The water, depending on what time of year, that, those mikvah will fill up and then decline as the water table moves. You can also control the water. So someone would come in, they would descend these stairs. Normally, that whole thing would be filled up. There's no plastering to try to hold the water. It simply moves the water in and out. And the reason this is so important is when you go to do your ritual cleansing, you want living water. Living water is water that was moved there on its own accord. You didn't bucket it up and have it sit there in a stale place. It's living water. And this is exactly what it is. It's living water brought in, and you descend into the mikvah to do your ritual cleansing. Again, it's an, it's an engineering feat. It's a sophisticated plumbing system, and it still works today. So that's, uh, that's pretty cool to see. I want to go back to this, though. This is called the Magdala Stone. Uh, by the way, let's see. One of these days, I'm going to put my numbers on my slide so I know which number I'm on. This is number four. So the Magdala Stone, again, I mentioned, found, discovered right in that place. And as you go closer, it's a depiction of the temple. Now, they're not really sure what it was used for. There's, there's four short legs, and they think it was used to read for the Torah scroll, to read the Torah when you're having your synagogue service. The depiction, though, is, they believe, the temple in Jerusalem all the way into the Holy of Holies. For instance, here is a oil lamp. So that would be representative of the oil lamps in the temple in Jerusalem. They don't know why they made it. They don't see many artistic representations of the temple like this, um, but it definitely precedes its first century, that's for sure. Now. What's really cool about it is this menorah on the back, because it's the earliest 
representation of a seven-candle menorah that they've ever found. So you can see there's a menorah. They have two wine jugs, so ceremonial wine jugs. And the menorah, I'll show you right here, has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven candles. That would be exactly like the menorah at the temple in Jerusalem. So pretty cool stone. And again, I, every article you read about it, the word strange is thrown in there because they kind of don't know what to do about this, uh, about this stone. Um, let me move over to more, something more modern. So for those who have been there, one of the coolest parts, if you take a trip there, is this chapel. So they built the chapel. It looks right out on the Sea of Galilee. So if my picture, I'll have to go in and Photoshop that, see if I can get rid of the haze. But right behind that boat sits the Sea of Galilee. So they made it so cool when you're sitting there because it looks like the boat is sitting right on top of the Sea of Galilee. And it's designed more Eastern. Everything is Sea of Galilee. Everything's Sea of Galilee. And then we were there right at Christmas time. So you get this thing right here, a Christmas tree. That's the most Western thing. Does not fit. There were no Christmas trees in uh, Jesus' day in Galilee. So clearly the Westerners got in there and stuck a tree next to the boat. But anyways, that was Christmas time. So this is a chapel that they have. If you go downstairs from the chapel, you have another more rustic chapel. And this is so cool because what you're looking at, the flooring of that, is the first century road. They took all the stones, they marked them, they labeled their positions, they lifted them up, they built all the building, they put the stone back in. So you're standing on the exact stones that we assume if Jesus is walking from the shore to the synagogue, that he would have walked right through down that road. So today it's a chapel. What everybody loves about this chapel shot or the going into that chapel is you're on a first century road, and the idea is to have an encounter with Jesus. So that painting you see, big painting on the wall, is called the encounter. And that's a painting that's depicting the woman who, as Jesus is walking down the road, she gets into the crowd and touches the fringe of his garment, the tassel, and is healed from, from her bleeding issue. So that giant painting is on the wall down there. It's a very cool painting. Okay, that's the downstairs one. And then the, the grand finale, which is, again, the, they've designed Magdala as a center. Everything honors women of the Bible. They have a women's symposium every, every year there at that hotel. And so right outside the chapel, you can see the chapel in the background with the boat. And as you're entering, you enter a rotunda. And the rotunda is dedicated to the women of the Bible. So you'll see there are some columns. There's eight of them. They, each column has a name or two. So one has Mary Magdalene, Ma the Magdalene. Another one has Mary and Martha, the sisters. But um, eight columns, one of them is blank. So you can stand next to it yourself. And as a woman of faith, you can be participatory in this kingdom of God business even today as you're standing there uh, in that rotunda. Here's another shot of the rotunda. 
and you can see all those colors, same colors that were on the fresco from the synagogue. And then off the rotunda, you get these small chapels. So here is a chapel for Mary Magdalene. And if you go closer on the picture, the picture is her encounter with Jesus. Now, it's very hard to see. The picture is intended to be divided in half. You can see there is almost like a chasm between Jesus and Mary. It's difficult to see, but she has one, two, three, four, five, six demons on her back, and then a snake that's still got the tail in the arm that's coiled around this tree. And the artist tried to make everything on the Mary side look like it was dying. And then as you cross over to Jesus, you get these flowers that show up. And that's representative of the new life that comes as she crosses that chasm over to Jesus. Um, anyways, that was just the, the way that the artist was de is depicting it, but it shows at least those demons. So let's talk about Mary. Let, now that we've kind of, that's at least the highlights of the Magdala tour. There's much more, but it's, most of it just looks like stones. So let's talk about Mary of Magdalene now. So Mary the Magdalene. Why is she referenced with her city, right? That was one of the questions we have. So a couple things about Mary. We know she's a follower of Jesus. Now, she's not called a disciple, but she's a follower of Jesus. She's the first witness of Jesus post-resurrection. I mean, that's a huge, it wasn't one of the, it wasn't Peter, it wasn't John, it was Mary that Jesus appeared to first. And then she's finally given, she's given a mission to proclaim that Jesus has risen to the disciples. So she's the messenger who's first bringing the, the good news. So her mission, I mean, this is huge. She's got some significant participatory moments of the good news. And we tend to read past that. Maybe we've got too much on our mind. What were the sins that caused all the seven demons? Generally speaking, when people think of Mary, they think prostitute. It's almost universally presented. Perhaps you saw Jesus Christ Superstar, and this is from the, the play from the 1970s, where Mary was the repentant prostitute that was in love with Jesus, or however they depict that. You know, she shows up in um, the Da Vinci Code as Jesus' wife somehow. But even as they depict her here, notice she's in red, because how do you depict a prostitute? What color do you use? Well, red. So that's, this is how our most people envision that. Now, how did we get there? How did we get to prostitute? Because it doesn't show up in the scripture. It never says that Mary was a prostitute. It simply says Seven or uh, yeah, seven demons came out of her. So, what I'd like you to do is if you look at Luke, Luke 8, and then go back to the story right before they, he mentions Mary. So, there's a conflation happening. The story right before she mentions Mary is about a woman who's called a sinner. She's not even called a prostitute, but a sinner who anoints Jesus, she weeps on his feet, washes his feet with her tears, 
washes his feet with her hair. But you have a story about a woman who's a sinner, unidentified. And then ending chapter seven, you go right into chapter eight. And now you get this, the, the comment about Mary and the seven demons. So what it looks like what's happening is these two stories are being conflated. We're taking one story and saying, now that's Mary. In fact, I went on um, Adobe Photoshop or photo stock photos. So I go onto stock photo, type in Mary Magdalene, and here's the picture that came up inside Adobe because somebody labeled it Mary Magdalene. That's the woman anointing Jesus's feet or crying or washing his feet with her tears and her hair. So you can see how our, in our uh, collective thinking, we've merged these women together with Mary, even though the Bible doesn't do that. So we have a woman that's apparently a sinner, again, dressed in red, because that's how you dress a sinner. And these, all get, these characters get conflated. So when did that happen? Well, it appears in the year 591. In 591, Pope Gregory I gave a sermon. You can read it online if you Google Pope Gregory's sermon on Mary, where he says, essentially, he doesn't, he doesn't come right out and say that she's a prostitute, but he says, essentially, it's the height of all sinning. The oil that she uses to anoint Jesus was the same oil that she used in her sensual acts. So she's a, He's essentially proclaiming that she's a prostitute. But starting in 591, that goes forward because he's the Pope. You know, he just declared it. And so now that, as we move forward, is how we get Mary into becoming a prostitute for the next 1,500 years. So now scholars are trying to go back and reclaim Mary's name. So, again, this is what scholars now think. After we view the, the city, this village, a large city almost, Magdala, and a wealthy city, is it possible that Mary's sins weren't sexual in nature, but her sins were sins of affluence? So perhaps she was a wealthy Magdalene. She controlled businesses or property. She got caught up in the, all the stuff that goes on when you're wealthy and how you no longer have to rely on God when you're wealthy. And she could easily walk away from God. The, the rabbis say Magdala was destroyed due to its moral depravity. The entire city, again, that's kind of what we looked at last week. This whole city gets destroyed. Uh, for their moral depravity, partly because of their wealth. So the fact that her name is connected to the city and the city was wealthy, their scholars now think, well, it's perhaps she controlled her own property or a business and had money and therefore strays away from God. She has an encounter with Jesus. She's got all the problems that wealthy people have when it comes to God. And she has an encounter with Jesus, and then as she's turning, repenting, and turning back to follow him, she's now using her wealth to support his ministry. So it's just something to think about, because generally, as I mentioned earlier, it's generally, not always, a woman's name will mostly be connected to a male, whether it's a father or a son, but here it's connected to a wealthy town. So that's the big question. Was Mary wealthy? Would she have owned property? 
Now, we'll finish with this because I had heard somebody, a scholar, talking about Mary being wealthy and basically said, no, she couldn't have owned property because women weren't allowed to have property. And it reminded me of something that comes out of Scripture, because the Bible does say that women are allowed to have property. And it's something that most of us would never know, because it's at the end of the book of Numbers, and you try to read the book of Numbers, you give up on chapter 3 or something. I want to show you, could she have owned property? Could property have been passed down? Perhaps she's a wealthy family. She doesn't have a husband yet, but she's wealthy. So I'm just going to read this, but you can go back and read it at some point in time. This comes from Numbers chapter 27, and it's about, it's a story about a guy named Zalophahad. And Zalophahad had five daughters. And this argument is going to come up, oh, five daughters but no sons. So an argument is going to be presented to Moses. Moses is going to take it to God, and God's going to answer, are the women allowed to have property? That's the question. So you can read it. It's verse 1 through 11. I'm going to start at verse 3. The daughters come to Moses. They say, verse 3, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the Korah followers who banded against the Lord. Korah had a whole bunch of rebels that rebelled against God. But he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan? Because he had no son. Now, give us property among our father's relatives. That's their demand. What happens next? Verse 5. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, what Zalophahad's daughters saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. And then verse 8, it says, Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and, le and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. So we do have precedence in the text of women owning property. In fact, if you read down a little bit further, it says this is going to become a law for Israel. So, again, you go back to this idea of Magdala, and you say, well, perhaps you have a wealthy town. What happens to kids when they grow up wealthy? Well, you can, all kinds of distortions can enter that, even though you have plenty. So, was Mary wealthy? We go back to that last verse. The women were helping to support them out of their own means. And so, this is the latest scholarship that we're at. Perhaps we'll find something there at Magdala that will change the trajectory of the next set of, you know, scholars. But it's something to think about. When you take into context the city of Magdala and the fact that we've conflated, you know, pastors, one problem that often happens in, when pastors give a sermon is they like to embellish. And if you're a theatrical pastor, as many pastors have been known to be for the past 2,000 years, you may be embellishing things, and the next thing you know, you get a trail that goes off, and you don't know how you ended up there, because it's not in the biblical text, but you get off on something like Mary the Magdalene. So God willing, we've been able to at least show you why you could, we can possibly redeem her. I'm looking forward to having a conversation in heaven with her. I don't know how that works. If you just think the thought and Mary shows up and you 
talk about, you know, what was going on in her life, but I definitely want to have that conversation because I think it's a, it's an interesting story and something to think about, particularly as you view archaeologically that city. God willing, that gives you a little bit of different perspective on the city of Magdala and hopefully on Mary as well. 